I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller, and the question I'm pursuing in this programme is, do Buddhism and Stoicism, two traditions that are both well over 2,000 years old, still have things to teach us about how to live today? I think in theory, both of the traditions would allow that if you're able to enjoy the things of the world without being attached to them, they would allow that. But I think in practice, that is really very, very difficult. And, and there's certainly a streak in both of the traditions that is, is more extreme. You know. My guest today is existential psychotherapist Antonia Macaro, author of the recent book More Than Happiness, Buddhist and Stoic Wisdom for a Skeptical Age, which is published by Icon Books. Antonia writes in her introduction, I am neither a Buddhist nor a Stoic by inclination. The ancient philosopher I feel most in tune with is the more down-to-earth 4th century Greek thinker Aristotle. But I have come back to Buddhism and Stoicism again and again over the years, despite my difficulties and reservations. Maybe it's because their insights seem to get to the heart of our experience of life in a way that other philosophies don't. I believe both traditions contain much daily wisdom that can help all of us to live better lives. In my conversation with Antonia, we explored the nature of some of that wisdom and also touch on those difficulties and reservations. But I began by asking her how she first encountered both traditions. Which one came first for her? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yes, hard to remember actually, but um, I think Buddhism came first. I can't remember, certainly from my 20s already, early 20s, I I, I was interested in that. And um, I started going to retreats, maybe my mid-20s. Had you had a philosophical training before then in the sort of Western tradition? Well, you study philosophy at school in Italy. So um, my secondary school, which studied history of philosophy, but I can't say that I'd been really inspired, probably because of the teacher. So I hadn't, um, uh, yeah, I hadn't been inspired. Stoicism took me a while to, to discover, I think, was probably maybe... Well, quite quite a while after Buddhism, I think. I think I struggled with Buddhism for, for, for quite a number of years and then I gave it up and then I discovered philosophy. So I studied philosophy again and uh, probably around about that time. Um, I, th- I think one of the first books about Stoicism that I read that was interesting was uh, Martha Nussbaum's uh, Therapy of Desire. I think that was... 
That was quite exciting at that time. You say, Antonio, early on in the book, I'm neither a Buddhist nor a Stoic by inclination. So something was speaking to you in mm. both, but you, you weren't going wholeheartedly. Yes. For either, if I can put it that way. Yes. And with Buddhism, it was a, a long struggle. Um, I'm not sure how long it was with Stoicism. But yes, I think there was, I mean, it was mainly the more metaphysical aspects of, of both of them that put me off. And and with Buddhism, I did try, I tried for years, uh, you know, talking to teachers and saying, oh, what about this rebirth thing? What about this karma thing? And and I couldn't quite, it didn't really, um, yeah, I, I think I was suspicious of anything metaphysical I couldn't quite get myself to to accept it I suppose it was just about being skeptical you know being quite skeptical by nature so that's why I couldn't uh, take them on board and with stoicism what was yeah. what was the nature of the the reservation that kept you from from saying yes this is this is it yeah, well, it, it, it's 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 the whole picture in the sense that we're supposed to be these sparks of um, this divine uh, rational principle that orders the world and so on. And I never really uh, took that on board. But the problem with, for me is that you could say, okay, forget about that. But I think that that is connected with other things like their views on emotions, and I could never really accept that we should aim to eradicate emotions, um, which is why some people these days deny that, that, that the Stoics did say that, but I think they did, although in a very, very specific way. I mean, that's why I preferred Aristotle, who said that you didn't have to do that, you just need to moderate emotions and you need to aim at appropriate emotions, not ex- yeah, not, yeah. not extreme by page 100 Aristotle pops up and you can you can see from 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 your writing that there's a definite affinity or <laughs> sympathy there so i guess that said you yes. know those reservations that you've just mentioned entered why then go back to those two traditions which various reasons you had found hadn't hadn't quite done it or you had serious reservations but why go back to them in order to interrogate them in the hope of of um of finding what yeah, that is a very good question. I had actually written a book about Aristotle a number of years ago, which um, ended up being about the application of his ideas to counselling and psychotherapy, uh, although I really intended it to be for general use. And um, I, I think everything I put in there could be applied to everybody's daily life. But yes, I think I think that is a good question. I think one reason is that both of these traditions have become very, very popular and they're not always portrayed in an accurate way. So that, and that, that's what I wanted to do with the book, because I think sometimes they're just, pe- people help themselves to little bits of these traditions. You talk about skimming the surface, don't you? And I yeah. guess, I guess what, you're, what you're saying is that some approaches to these traditions yeah. merely skim the surface. Yeah, so I, I, I see a, a, a dual um, danger, uh, and, and I see that happening all the time, about both of these traditions. On the one hand, people just take tiny bits to be happier, to be more relaxed. The same, you know, with mindfulness that's happened. I think it happens with Stoicism a lot. Yeah, that people take some Stoic quotations and and they think they're going to be more relaxed and, and so on. So I think that's one danger. The other opposite danger is that people 
take more than than they need to in a way that is not useful like all the metaphysical assumptions that i think we don't need to take and i think weirdly i think you can probably go from one to the other as well because unless you've really thought it through what should i take and what should i leave you could go from one to the other you could go from taking bits of inspirations just to be more relaxed to accepting a world view that actually is not um is not a good one to to accept in this day and age so so i think i think that and and that's what i wanted to address i wanted to say there are good things in these traditions uh, in unlike aristotle they um address the human condition a lot more which is one thing i really liked about them there's a lot of advice a lot of um yeah a lot of wisdom there is a lot of wisdom so it's it is practical advice there's, about how you live your life yeah. as well as analyzing the cosmos and to thinking about humans place in it yes yes there is a lot of practical advice and but i think i think you just really need to think through which bits you're going to take and which not and 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 i thought it was an important thing to do because because there's so much advice and because they're so popular and 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 i think not always taken in the right way i thought i thought it's 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 worth sitting down and saying okay what's what's good and what's what's not so good now you could have reached that point but then decided you were only going to look at one of the traditions you're going to look at stoicism or you're going to look at buddhism yes. and you're going to see what things held up for you yeah now obviously there are some things in common they both arise around the same time yeah. but there there are also salient differences so what what was it that appealed to you about looking at both the traditions in tandem well partly because i, th- I think um that's all we're often remarked on you know how how similar they are and i just wanted to really understand for myself in what way they were similar and in what way they were different and as you say there are lots of differences so metaphysically in terms of like their world view they are very very different but i think the the kernel as you were behind both of them uh, is is very similar the motivation is very similar you know which is about saying that we value the wrong things in life so you know we tend to value things of the world and success and love and and money and comfort and pleasure and pleasure and 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 this, the opposite is to avoid anything painful and uncomfortable and 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 they're both saying this is wrong you know that we should be less attached to this to to, to pursuing pleasure um and and all these things in the world of the world and and avoiding pain and um they are the wrong values and the wrong priorities for different reasons but you know the bottom line is that they are the wrong values and wrong priorities so we should um change we should change that and live differently that's the sort of the sort of clear-sightedness or the sort of dispassionate or however you 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 choose to characterize it analysis of the way many of us live yeah. then there's the then so the, if the, if you accept that analysis then there's a question of what do you what do you do about it how do you live your life having recognized that a lot of the the things that we pursue are impermanent um meretricious whatever you know don't don't have lasting worth then where where do we find things of worth now do you see the traditions as being markedly different when they when they come to address that question Well, I think they both try to push us in the direction direction of being less attached to things of the world generally 
as I said, for different reasons, right? In Buddhism, um, I mean, in Stoicism, it's about the fact the only thing that's really of value is, is virtue and your moral choice. And that's the only thing that should matter. Everything else they called indifferent. And in Buddhism, it's about cultivating non-attachment uh, because basically uh, the world is, is characterized by being dukkha, which means unsatisfactory and being impermanent. And so we shouldn't really look for satisfaction in this world because we won't find it. So, so it's a question of being less attached to all of these things. So for me, it's a question of where you draw the line, because I think in both of the traditions, although I think in theory, both of the traditions would allow that if you're able to enjoy the things of the world without being attached to them, they would allow that. But I think in practice, that is really very, very difficult. And, and there's certainly a streak in both of the traditions that is, is more extreme, you know, that is about leaving these things behind. So I suppose um, my take uh, in relation to that is that that we don't need to be extreme, that, yes, we should take their advice, we should understand that things are impermanent, that things are unsatisfactory, and that's just a feature of human existence. And so we should, should think about that. And that means both accepting that the things we value will pass. I think it's just a good, good thing to do, just be aware that things are, have, are limited in time. But also we should certainly follow their advice in terms of withdrawing a lot of, of um, value from certain things like material wealth and, and success and people's approval and, um, and all these things that we get quite caught up in a lot of the time. So I think certainly for that kind of, at, at that level of, of daily life, we should suddenly follow their advice that these things don't matter that much. The subtitle of the book makes clear you're writing for a secular age. And we've talked a little bit about the metaphysical aspect, which you found most difficulty with, and I guess a lot of people will find difficulty with today. But if we extract that, if we deduct that, are we just left with some some useful lifestyle advice? Because you're, I mean, you're writing about traditions which have very long histories, which have which have no single authoritative canon, which have a lot of interpretative differences. So, are we doing more than just sort of cherry picking quite useful pieces of lifestyle advice? Do you think? And if so, what what are we what are we founding it on? I, th I think we can do so. Uh, what I came up with, and that's really my conclusion, other people might come to different ones, is that the two things that uh, I think it would be useful to take and that are common to both traditions are a focus on, on, on thinking, well, uh, valuing thinking, thinking clearly about things. And the other is, um, is just ethi ethics, really, and sort of ethic, living ethically, which in some ways they spelled it out differently. But I think taking those values and, and deciding for ourselves how we're going to live that, I think they're important messages to, to live in that way by trying to really understand things. And that, that doesn't mean that we'll see the world as it really is, like the same Buddhism, I don't believe in that. Um, so um, it, 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 we need to translate it to in our own terms. What does it mean to think clearly? For me, it means thinking critically and being sceptical and so on, researching things before you believe them and, and so on. But, you know, we need to think for ourselves what we mean by that. And living ethically, again, there are lots of ways of spelling that out. And we don't, 
we can take inspiration from what they say, uh, but uh, what we need to translate it in our own terms. So I, th- I think for me, these are important messages that mean that we're taking more than just tips to be happy. Obviously, I can't prove to you that that is a good life, that that is what good life means. You know, if you think that um, a good life just means hedonism, then I'm probably not going to persuade you very much. So I'm not really, it's not a a proof uh, of, of that, but it's just saying I think that these things are really prominent in both traditions. There's lots that we can take and and um, and they, they would add to, to our life if we, if we thought of our life in that way rather than just how can we be a bit happier. So yes, both traditions uh, say that that the real joy that we can get isn't from uh, things going well in the world because that's quite unreliable, um, but it is from things like thinking clearly about things, accepting things the way they really are and acting ethically, doing the right thing. So that that, that is the way to be happier, um, but not, yeah, not, not to rely on the world giving us what we want, because a lot of the time it doesn't. Tell me about your title, More Than Happiness. Yes. Because the casual observer might think you're sort of aiming at some greater state of bliss, but to tell, tell, me what, tell, tell me what, in fact, you're, you're pointing to there. Yeah, so it's it's about what I just um, I just said really that when we look at this at the wisdom of these of these traditions, we shouldn't really aim just at happiness. We shouldn't really focus on happiness all the time anyway. anyway. Because we miss it. Because it's 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 a byproduct rather than a target. Yes, I mean it is for a start. It's counterproductive. You know, it raises our expectations about how things should be like in the world, and 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 they're not going to to be like that. So the the higher our expectations in a in a in a way, the less happy we'll be. So so it's not a good thing to aim for, and and also it's quite self centered. Uh, just to think about being happier, you should think about we should think more about how we are in the world and and um, how we act towards other people and, and so on. Tell, tell me a little bit about, I mean, I, I guess a lot of people listening know that mindfulness is derived um, from Buddhism yeah. in a fairly significant way. Maybe a little bit less familiar with stoicism and uh, cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, you, you quote Epictetus saying people are disturbed not by things, but by the views they take of things. How... how um, how, how direct is the sort of filiation between the Stoics and and that therapeutic practice? I'm not really sure in terms of, um, I don't know what Albert Ellis, the founder of uh, Rational Emotive Behaviour Therapy, for example, who um, quotes that. Um, I, I don't really know how central he thought he was being. I mean, they, that quotation is used a lot. And people do use it as if to say, CBT is applied stoicism, and I don't think stoicism is a um, sorry. CBT is applied stoicism because, well, that is quite a general quotation. You can read it in different ways, and the stoic reading of it is it goes very much back to their theory of value, to the fact that you shouldn't get disturbed by things because the only thing you have control of is your moral choice, and so on. So it, it, that sums up in a way the whole stoic worldview and cbt doesn't take on the 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 stoic worldview so yes i mean with that quotation just means that if you if you exclude the stoic side of it it just means that yes we can 
look at things in a different way, which is true. Yeah, and that, and that is the basis of, of CBT. But the CBT has got also a lot more in it uh, that, that, that isn't, isn't that. So I, th- I think you'd be wrong to think that, that CBD was just um, an application of stoicism because there's a lot more. I mean, CBD, for example, in terms of emotions, CBT is much more Aristotelian in my view in the sense that it aims at appropriate emotions, certainly not eradicating emotions like Stokes would say. So I think it's certainly possible to overemphasize the similarities. I think it's a starting point. Because certain certain of the ancient writers you quote, if you were to apply them strictly, it would be quite it would be quite hardcore, the the the, the level of radical detachment. Um I think you quote Brandon Williams as as, as calling it lethal high mindedness. It would be quite a strong yes. prescription, wouldn't it? Yes. Hardcore um yes. stoicism. I think a lot of people who consider themselves Stoics probably aren't quite I mean obviously people do adapt it at the you know the, the, in in modern life they they do, but I'm not sure that they'd even be considered Stoics. And I actually remember that, uh, I can't remember the exact quotation, but Epictetus does say this. He says that a lot of his students, a lot of the people studying Stoicism, if they really examine themselves, they'd find that they're maybe Aristotelians or Epicureans, but not really Stoics, because Stoic is very, very extreme. And I don't think that many people really live like that. I personally don't think that that would be necessarily a good thing to be that extreme. So it's always like a modified Stoicism that I'd advocate. So yeah, and maybe even the Stoics were were modified yes. Stoics because I mean I, I did smile when is it Epictetus who was who was suggesting you shouldn't have more than you need to eat and you shouldn't have a bigger the house and you need and you shouldn't have more slaves yeah, than yeah. you need, <laughs> and then you've got Seneca you know, a very wealthy man sort of wrestling and not quite resolving his problems. And I'd, I thought maybe there's a little a little sort of little difficulty there, even with the early practitioners of Stoicism applying it yes. rigidly. Yes, no, I, th- I definitely think that that's true. Um, I don't know, maybe some more than others. I don't really know what Epictetus was like in his daily life. He's certainly quite extreme in what he says. Seneca, we think, probably was probably much more. In fact, if you read Seneca's letters, there are some things that are more Epicurean than uh, than, than Stoic. So he he was much more rounded individual and had, as you say, his fair share of dilemmas about how attached he should be to um, wealth and material comforts. But in your final chapter, you you sort of distill what you've been writing about into. You emphasise the practical aspect of both these these approaches to to the world, um, as as we've said, and you sort of distill some of the the wisdom, I guess, which you think is applicable in a in a secular context. Yeah. How did you, how did you sort of go about doing that boiling down exercise? Or perhaps I can, the way I can put it is, what did you, were the things that you ended up with things which you have personally found useful? In those traditions, yes, yes, I think I think I just um, uh, um, approached it in that way, just looking at things that I found useful. I mean, a lot of it is about well, we haven't talked yet about the ideal of equanimity, which was quite important for, for both of them, although it was tempered by compassion. There is a bit of a tension between equanimity and compassion in both traditions, I think. Um, but equanimity is an important ideal. And I don't think, I personally don't think that pure equanimity is a realistic goal. I'm not entirely sure there would be a really good goal uh, because it would mean, in a way, that we're too detached 
from certain things give life meaning like personal relationships and and uh, and other things but i think we can certainly do with a bit more equanimity so some of the things that i have there are things that maybe aim to put things in perspective a little bit and that that's an important thing to to do um so so we shouldn't we it, it is true i agree with them that we shouldn't get so caught up in in um certain things and and that a certain amount of tranquility probably is a good thing although I am a bit suspicious of chasing states of mind because they are, you know, they come and go and I don't think that they're the things that really matter. But yes, I mean, we, we, we could be a little bit more detached and a little bit more tranquil and that would be a good thing. So some of the things I have in there probably have that aim and there are some about how to deal with, you, with, with people, which uh, again is an interesting one because... For the Stoics, for example, a lot of um, you had to be realistic about what you were going to encounter in your daily life, and and people can be very annoying. So they, they you know, there are some, uh, there are some, um, there are quite a lot of really nice quotations about that. But at the same time, there is this thing of being compassionate and understanding that everybody has flaws, and and um, and, and and to try to understand that that people act badly because they don't understand things and, and and that's the same for us it's the same for everybody else so so it's it's there's a lot about trying to be compassionate if you understand that one one point you you make a number of times in the book is that our understanding of the mind the, the brain our, yeah. our processes what's what's actually going on beneath the Beneath the surface is, I mean, our understanding of that has has, yes. has changed radically, hasn't yes. it? Not just from two and a half thousand years ago, but in the last 10 years, five years. How recuperable do you think, therefore, the, the kind of wisdom traditions are within a framework where we have a, a very different understanding from, mm. from they did of how the human mind works? Yeah, that is a that is quite a difficult one because especially the Stoics put a lot of emphasis on this thing that the only thing we can control is our moral choice and and, and so rationality is as well to the fore, yes, isn't it? Yes, yes, exactly. So I I certainly think they were wrong in that uh, in the sense that, as you say, we are told uh, uh, that 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 a lot of our function is unconscious and that we don't even know our motivation uh, very well. Sometimes we act thinking that we're acting for one reason and in fact we're acting on a completely different reason. There's a lot of studies in social psychology that show that. So I certainly think we shouldn't overemphasize that those abilities because we need to be aware of the fact that yeah, I mean we don't really understand ourselves. But on the other hand, there are good aims to have to be rational. That is a very good aim to have. It's true that we have probably more choice on our reactions to things and the way we act than on actual things that happen in the world. So in that sense, I think they were correct. And and so it's good to remind ourselves of that a lot of the time because we do get very worked up about how things go for us in the world. And a lot of the time it's good to remind ourselves that we don't have any control on, on, on that. So so focusing more on our reactions. So I think it's good as a as a, as an inspiration and as, as a kind of um, ideal of some kind but not in that extreme way that they were um, that they were saying, yes. You have emphasised ethical action, but a worry I always have about traditions which emphasise renunciation and attachment is 
what that means for for politics and political engagement and the ability to to effect any change. Now, both traditions would say the world is so far from perfect and everything is so impermanent that we're never going to achieve a, a perfect mm. political state of being. But is there a danger that if we if we're attending too much to this kind of advice that we may just think, well, you know, all sorts of wrongs will go unrighted because that's the way of the world. And I, you know, I'm going to turn my my back on that. And, mm. you know, women would never have the vote or, you know, there would be no efforts made towards racial equality or whatever. So mm. d- can you say something about how you how you see going beyond the sort of ethical into the into the sort of more political arena in, in this context? Yeah, I mean, it, again, it's a difficult one. And um Definitely there's a tension in both traditions between detachment and action. The, the, the Stoics did have uh, an action streak, as you were, which was about um, fulfilling your duties and, you know, doing what you, you could and given the circumstances you, you were in. But yes, it is definitely a tension and, you know, maybe this is the sense in which maybe a bit more of an Aristotelian. I think in the end there's the... Serenity prayer, which is about having the courage to change the things that you can change, and the wisdom, and the um, serenity to accept the ones that you can't change, and the wisdom to know the difference, which is actually very hard to do. But I think yes, I mean, really, it must be about that because I think it's certainly worth trying to change things in the world that um, you think is possible to change. Maybe sometimes, even if you don't think it's possible to change, mm. uh, some things might be worth fighting for. Anyway, and it's a question of finding a balance between that and 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 um, not getting too attached to things. And I suspect that that balance might be a personal, individual choice where you draw the line between the two things. We started out talking about the fact that you've had a relationship with both both these traditions that that dates back a number of decades. Did writing the book and doing the research enable you to sort of resolve your relationship with them in some sense and you know to make you decide exactly where you stand in relation to them the extent to which you go along with them you talk about you know walking the tightrope and this balancing act between taking too much and taking too little going too deep or not going deeply enough did writing the book sort of help you come to some sort of conclusions about this yes i I think some of the things probably i was quite clear about say for example in buddhism the rebirth thing i really couldn't accept or the fact that you could see things as they really are um in the stoicism there is the whole thing about eradicating emotions and the thing about being sparks of the divine principle and so on so I think I was quite clear about what I didn't want to take I think I am now clearer about what I didn't want to take and uh, what advice I think is sound and uh, yeah so I think I think I've become clearer about that picture yeah I was talking to Antonia Macaro about more than happiness which is available in hardback from icon books full details at iconbooks.com. Do also visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in the series. And if you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can catch up on any interviews you've missed. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.